Section 21 of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12, Raleigh's Trial at Winchester, Part 2. The expression made use of by Brooke that the king and his cubs ought to be destroyed together was brought up against Raleigh, who exclaimed indignantly, O oh, barbarous, if they, like unnatural villains, spoke such words, shall I be charged with them? I will not hear it. Do you bring the words of those hellish spiders, Clark, Watson, and others against me? Cook broke out in a rage. Thou hast a Spanish heart, and thyself art a spider of hell. For thou confessest the king to be a most sweet and gracious prince, and yet thou hast conspired against him. More evidence which proved nothing was produced. Then the results of the examination of Camus, Raleigh's trusted friend, who had been with him in Guiana, were read. He confessed that he had taken a message and a letter from Raleigh to Cobham, when both were in the tower, bidding Cobham not to be afraid, since one witness could not hurt him. This Raleigh denied, and by so doing put himself in the wrong, for it was clear that Camus was not likely to have invented the story. Raleigh professed that the statement had been extorted from Camus by the sufferings arising from his close imprisonment and by the threat of the rack. On the whole, however, the evidence against Raleigh proved nothing. The most absurd things were dragged in to prove him guilty, amongst others the remark of a Portuguese sailor at Lisbon that James would never be crowned because before that his throat will be cut by Don Raleigh and Don Cobham. In summing up, Sergeant Phillips said that the question for the jury was who they should believe, Raleigh or Cobham. It was Raleigh's business to prove the falsehood of Cobham's accusation, and this had not been done. Cook said that even though Cobham had retracted, yet he could not rest nor sleep till he had confirmed. He then read a letter from Cobham to the commissioners, in which Cobham withdrew his retractation and repeated his accusations against Raleigh. The reading of this letter was a great blow to Raleigh, who had not suspected that even Cobham could be guilty of such falsehood. But he produced from his pocket the letter which Cobham had written him in the tower. This was read aloud by Cecil, though Cook tried to prevent it. Then Raleigh turned to the jury and said, now, my masters, you have heard both. That showed against me is but a voluntary confession. This is under oath, and the deepest protestations a man can make. Therefore believe which of these hath the most force. The jury then retired. They were only absent a quarter of an hour, and returned with a verdict of guilty. Raleigh spoke calmly. My lords, the jury have found me guilty they must do as they are directed. I can say nothing why judgment should not proceed. You see whereof Cobham hath accused me. You remember his protestation that I was never guilty. I desire the king should know the wrong I have been done to since I came hither. Chief Justice Popham, in passing judgment, was not content with abusing Raleigh for his so-called horrible treasons, but went on to abuse him for the heretical opinions which he was supposed to hold. He concluded by passing sentence of death. Raleigh's bearing remained perfectly dignified to the end. 
he had so behaved throughout the trial that many of those who had come to it full of hostile feelings toward him went away with changed minds full of sympathy for a man whose greatness they could not fail to see one man who was present writing about it said that when he saw sir walter raleigh first he was so led with the common hatred that he would have gone a hundred miles to see him hanged but ere they parted he would have gone a thousand to save his life another says that never was a man so hated and so popular in so short a time. In after years, even one of the judges who sat on the bench at the trial said that never before was English justice so injured or so degraded as then. Posterity has agreed with this opinion and with one voice pronounced Raleigh innocent. For the jury it may be said in excuse that probably they were unable to see the enormous difference between two such men as Cobham and Raleigh. To them, the question was which of the two they should believe. The lawyers told them to believe Cobham, and they obeyed. The truth of the matter seems to be that Raleigh had listened to Cobham's talk about his dealings with Aremberg. Then, when suddenly questioned at Windsor, he had thought to put an end to all suspicions by denying the existence of any understanding between Cobham and Aremberg. Afterwards, he had seen that the truth must come out, and had confessed what he knew. But this contradiction had of course tended to diminish men's belief in his veracity, and had helped the lawyers to get his condemnation from the jury. Raleigh's trial took place on the 17th November. A few days after, Cobham and Gray were both tried, and also convicted of high treason. The persons implicated in the surprising treason had been tried and condemned before. Early in December, Brooke and the two priests Clark and Watson were executed at Winchester. The king was supposed to be full of hesitations as to the fate of the other condemned prisoners. He probably never intended that they should be executed, but his timid mind was afraid lest they should know of more treasons than they had confessed. He hoped that perhaps at the hour of death they might be led to confess more. Each, therefore, was made to believe that he was actually to be executed, on the 10th of December was fixed for the execution of Markham, Gray, and Cobham, the 13th for the execution of Raleigh. For a few days Raleigh's wonted courage deserted him. He wrote letters to Cecil, to the lords of the council, and to the king, in which he begged for life in terms of abject humility, which were quite unworthy of him. His letter to his wife, written later, is very different in tone. It seems strange to us when we read it, to think that the man who wrote it could have been generally supposed to be an unbeliever and a scoffer at religion. After deploring that he was unable to provide for her as he would have wished, he goes on to say, But God hath prevented all my determinations, the great God that worketh all in all. If you can live free from want, care for no more, for the rest is but vanity. Love God, and begin betimes to repose yourself on him, Therein shall you find true and lasting riches and endless comfort. For the rest, when you have traveled and wearied your thoughts on all sorts of worldly cogitations, you shall sit down by sorrow in the end. Teach your son also to serve and fear God while he is young, that the fear of God may grow up in him. He then speaks about various monies which were owed to him and adds, And howsoever, for my soul's health I beseech you pay all poor men. By this time he repented bitterly for the unworthy way in which he had sued for life. 
he bids his wife, Get those letters, if it is possible, which I wrote to the lords, wherein I sued for my life. But God knows that it was for you and yours that I desired it. But it is true that I disdain myself for begging it. And know it, dear wife, that your son is the child of a true man, and who in his own respect despiseth death and all his misshapen and ugly forms. I could not write much. God knows how hardly I steal this time when all sleep, and it is time to separate my thoughts from the world. I can write no more. Time and death call me away. The everlasting, infinite, powerful, and inscrutable God, that almighty God that is goodness itself, mercy itself, the true life and light, keep you and yours and have mercy on me, and teach me to forgive my persecutors and false accusers, and send us to meet in his glorious heaven. My true wife, farewell. Bless my poor boy, pray for me. My true God, hold you both in his arms. Written with the dying hand of sometime thy husband, but now, alas, overthrown, yours that was, but now not my own, W. Raleigh. Lady Raleigh herself was doing all she could to save her husband's life. She wrote to Cecil, If the grieved tears of an unfortunate woman may receive any favor, or the unspeakable sorrows of my dead heart may receive any comfort, then let my sorrows come before you, which, if you truly knew, I assure myself you would pity me, but most especially your poor unfortunate friend, which relieth wholly on your honorable and wonted favor. Her mental sufferings seem to have broken down her health, for she concludes her letter by saying, I am not able, I protest before God, to stand on my trembling legs, otherwise I would have waited now on you, or be directed wholly by you. On the 10th of December, all was ready for the execution of Markham Gray and Cobham. From the window of the room where he was confined, Raleigh could see the scaffold and watch the strange scene which went on. Markham had just made himself ready for the executioner when there was a stir in the crowd of bystanders. An unknown Scotchman had arrived in great haste. He spoke a few words with the sheriff, who then turning to Markham told him he was to have two hours' respite, and had him led away. Next, Gray was brought on to the scaffold. He was a very popular man, and his friends were there in great numbers to give him courage to the last. He had never demeaned himself by asking for life, and now seemed calm and cheerful. He made a long prayer, but no confession of importance. Then again the sheriff approached, said Gray was to have a little respite, and had him led away. Cobham next appeared, and the same scene was acted over again. From him, too, no new confession was extorted, and he only repeated his former accusations against Raleigh. He seemed prepared to meet death with boldness and contempt. Whilst he still remained upon the scaffold, Markham and Gray were sent for, and the sheriff then told them that the king had given them their lives. This information was greeted by the spectators with much applause. Raleigh was also told that he was reprieved, and then he, Cobham, and Gray were all removed to the tower. Markham and some others of the conspirators were ordered to leave the kingdom. Even before Raleigh's trial, his offices of Governor of Jersey, Lord Warden of the Stanneries, and Lieutenant of Cornwall had been declared forfeited, and had been awarded to others. Now his wine patent was taken away, and he would probably have been left destitute but for Cecil's kindly offices. 
Cecil seems to have acted the part of a true friend and to have earned the gratitude of both Sir Walter and Lady Raleigh. He saved Raleigh's manor of Sherborne from confiscation, though many were eager in their suits for it. Cecil says there were no fewer than a dozen asking for it. All that Raleigh lost at present with regard to it was his life interest. He had executed a conveyance in the last days of Elizabeth in which he made over the estate to his wife and son after his death. This, he trusted, would still hold good. We shall see in the future how his wish to hand down to his son the beautiful estate which he had planted with such care and loved so dearly was to be disappointed with all his other hopes. End of section 21